We're in a series called Samuel. So kids, I want to dismiss the kids for Children's Church while the rest of us turn to 1 Samuel chapter 6. That is where we are today. We are going through a series called The King of Kings in Samuel, 1st and 2nd Samuel. We're calling it The King of Kings because Samuel is a book, both 1st and 2nd Samuel, uh, is about the transition of God's people into a monarchy uh, where they will have kings now, but we recognize that the greatest king, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords is Jesus the Christ. So that's where we got our title, King of Kings. Jesus, of course, is the hero of every story, and it is... The, the Bible, just so we're on the same page, the scriptures, the Bible is not primarily a book, a story, a narrative on how to be good. It's a story of gospel. It's a story of God's intervening grace that comes into our lives through the person and the work of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the hero. And we are, we are constantly, as a church, going back to the truths of the gospel. And if there was ever a way to remind ourselves how important the gospel is, it is to see God's holiness and our rebellion and, and how great God's love is for us. We hope you hear that every Sunday. And, and, and as we remind ourselves of the holiness of God, we can see how desperate we are. And the more we see the holiness of God, we will never get tired of hearing about the unending grace he's shown to us and the love he's shown to us through the, the perfect life, the, the righteousness of Christ and, and the, the, the uh, atoning death, his, his wrath-absorbing death and resurrection from the grave. It never gets old if we recognize how holy and perfect God is. And that's what chapters 6 and 7 really is about. It's really about the holiness of God. And now we're not going to read chapter 6 and 7. I'm going to read it as we go through the text, save time. But I want everybody, if you have a Bible, 1 Samuel chapter 6, verse 20. Right in the middle of the, our text says this. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? That's the most important question in the universe. Remember, it's the question that was on Martin Luther's mind as he nailed the 95 theses to the castle door in Wittenberg. How can a man or a woman be made right with God? How can a person enter into the white, hot, pure, and holy presence of God if we are clearly, clearly not perfect and stained with sin? Today, many people, if they even believe in God, think that it's God's job it's God's job to forgive. That's what he does. And it's an easy job. Because I'm not that bad. Because when our standard of what's bad is our, is our neighbor or our, our friends or some crazy guy who kills innocent children, I don't seem that bad. But unfortunately, you and I don't determine the standard of our judgment. Our creator God does. We'll see. We, in light of his holiness, cannot stand before God. That's what our story's about. Let me bring you up to speed. It's a dark time in Israel. God is working, though. There's a barren woman. Her name is Hannah. She's a woman of faith, and she has a son. His name is Samuel. The first part of the book is about a man named Samuel. Samuel is conceived, weaned, and brought to Shiloh. And given to the Lord, chapters 1 and 2. Meanwhile, at Shiloh, the tabernacle was there. 
There was a place of worship. There were some really bad people there. Eli, the, the, the high priest, not totally bad, but has made some serious errors. He had two wicked sons, the Bible says, that they were abusing the worshipers and abusing the women that were at the temple. And an unnamed prophet in chapter 2 tells Eli that judgment is coming. He has failed to honor the Lord above his children. In chapter 3, God calls Samuel to be his prophet. And the word of the Lord is said to be renewed and restored in Israel, at Shiloh, in the tabernacle. Yet in chapter 4, God's word is fulfilled, and both Eli and his two sons are killed. Two die in battle, the sons, and Eli falls over and it breaks his neck. If you remember, Israel had gone into battle with the Philistines, and and they, they did not consult the word of the Lord, even though it was renewed. And the word of the Lord came to the people. The people went on their own strength, on their own battle, did whatever they wanted, and they were greatly defeated twice in chapter 4. The second time, Eli's sons die, and at the end of chapter 4, his sons are Hophni and Phinehas. And as they die, also, if you remember last week, the Ark of the Covenant was taken. You remember, the Ark of the Covenant was called out like a rabbit's foot, some sort of good luck charm. So, so, to, so somehow they could get the, get the strength and the power to overcome their enemies. And then the end of chapter 4, Phineas's wife, while, while dying and giving a birth to a child, recognized the ark is gone. The, the symbol, uh, the presence of God was taken out of Israel, and she names the child Ichabod, meaning glory gone. The glory has departed from Israel. We ended last week saying maybe it was possible that the glory had already departed, the presence of God had already left because of Eli and his sons, and that's why the ark was taken. If you remember, just quickly, a couple of people said it was, it was good for them to see a visual understanding of the ark. Uh, that's not the actual ark, but that's what the ark looked like. We have the dimensions right in Scripture, so it's very clear what it looked like. Box inside Ten Commandments, cherubim, wings touching each other. Between the cherubim is what's called the mercy seat or the atonement cover where sacrifices were made. And the blood was sprinkled to atone for sin. And where God came and said, I will dwell there. I will meet you there. I will dwell in his Shekinah glory. Presence was above the tabernacle. Well, excuse me, above the Ark of the Covenant. But now this Ark is in the hands of the enemy. The Ark was taken, chapter 4. and chapter 5, the Ark is taken to Philistines, to the land of Philistine, five different places. And everywhere the Ark went, God brought trouble and tumors Some think it's bobotic plague. Some think it was actually a Hebrew word for, pardon me, I'll only say it once, hemorrhoids. Verse 11 and 12 of chapter 5 kind of sums it up as this ark was being brought from one place to the other and tumors were inflicted upon the people in Philistine, in the Philistine area. Chapter 5. Verse 11 and 12. They gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, send away the ark. Send away the ark of God of Israel. Let it return to its own place that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deadly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. Verse 12. The men who did not die were struck with tumors and the city and the cry of the city went up to heaven. God was teaching them. God was teaching everyone a lesson about his holiness. Who can stand before this holy God? I want to break this time together up into four things, or four ways to approach God. And we'll see in chapter 4 
the, 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 the way of recklessness. The way of repentance, chapter 7. And chapter 7 ends with a glorious recommitment and celebration of God. That's where we're going. The way of recklessness. I have some of the verses up. I couldn't put them all up. Hopefully you can read them. If not, first, have a Bible. If you don't have Bibles, there's Bibles in the back of the mind. Get up and grab one. It'll be fine. Number one. How do we stand before the holiness of God? The way of recklessness. Chapter 6, verse 1. The ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. The longest seven months of their life. And the Philistine called for the priests and the diviners and said, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us with what shall we send it to its place. They said, If you send away the ark of God of Israel, do not send it empty. But... By all means, return him a guilt offering. Then you will be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. And they said, what is the guilt offering that we shall return it to them? To him, they answered. Five golden tumors and five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines. Verse 17 tells us there was five of them. For the same plague was on all of you and on the Lord. So you must make images of your tumors and images of your mice... That ravaged the land, obviously they were bringing the, the, the mice or the rats were, were infestation, there was an infestation in the land, and give glory to the God of Israel. Make these mice, make these images, make, give glory to God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his, hand from, lighten his hand from off you and your gods and your land. So the Philistines wanted nothing to do with this ark. And in particular, the trouble that it brought to the land. And their answer was, let's go ask the priest, let's go ask these spiritualists to not only give it back to them, but when we do, how are we going to do that? What is the proper way? Now, I don't think when it says that they were going to give glory to God, that they were trusting in Yahweh, they were, they were putting their faith in Israel, they just wanted to get rid of that box and the trouble that it was causing them the tumors, and the death. In other words, give God glory so that we can stop the plagues. As I was studying and I came across that passage, I thought, man, I I have said that prayer. Lord, if you just get me through this, I, I, I promise. Lord, if, if, if this drug overdose doesn't take my life, I promise, only to go back. They were intent on setting it in a place. It's a good idea. But they did not consult the word of the Lord, the Israelites, the Hebrews, on what is the right way to send it back. Golden mice and golden tumors are not the way to go. But you got to give them credit, right? I mean, they've, at least they've recognized we're sending this ark back and we have somehow, some way, obviously, offended God. God needed to be appeased, propitiated is the word, or appeased, and therefore ending, you know, sending back this ark just empty is not a good idea. Something needed to be done. God's hand was heavy upon us. God's justice was heavy upon us. God's wrath was heavy upon us. Now, we can make fun of the primitive ways we're like oh let's get a picture of that tumor and let's get a picture of that mice and let's build something gold and send it back but at least they recognized that god was not happy that god's wrath was upon them 
God had brought justice and judgment on that land, and he was angry at sin. You got to give him credit for that because you talk about God being angry about sin, you're going to hear the crickets creak, right? People don't want to hear that. The, 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 at least the Philistines were aware of what the Apostle Paul told the Roman church. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Everyone knows the truth, they suppress it. They hide it, they hold it down. But they were sending tumors, which is a skin disease. It's unclean. They're sending mice or rats, unclean animals, according to the word of the Lord. They were, they were sending an offering, but they were violating the law of God, the law that God has established. Now, a few years ago, and I, wanna, I, wanna, I don't usually do this, but sometimes, on our website, there's a series that we did, five-part series, I don't know, two years ago or so, called The Atonement. And we learned as we went through that series that the atonement is not something that man determines, but something that God has given man. That he determined how to atone for sin. It originates, originates actually from God. Leviticus chapter 17 verse 11 is one of those main verses on the atonement. God said this, for the life of the flesh is in the blood and I have given it for you on the altar. We talked about that atonement, the mercy seat. I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is in the blood that makes atonement by the life. We don't construct the covenant. We don't come to God and decide how we are to approach a holy God. He decides for us and by his grace, by his grace, he has revealed us to us what we need to do. I've given you the blood to make atonement for your sins. Sin is serious. Sin is a serious matter. By nature, it threatens life. It is, is a treason against the author of life. Blood, he gives us not only as a symbol, but it makes atonement. Not, not so much of the blood flowing through the veins, but it's, it is the blood shed, is the life ending that makes atonement for one's life. Life ended, and usually it's by violent means, Right? Think of the sacrifice in the temple. The life of the creatures in the blood and the, life that, that, and the blood that makes atonement for one's life. You have a, uh, John Stott writes, one life is forfeit, another life is sacrificed instead. The vicarious nature of the sacrifice is that life was given for life. The life of the victim for the life of the offer. The life of the innocent victim for the life of the sinful offerer. You see? That, that's, that's atonement. That life ending, death coming to that sacrifice to atone sin and if they had come to the jewish people and asked them we're giving back the ark how do you want this what is the guilt offering we should offer they would have known that what propitiates the wrath of god what what propitiates the wrath of god what is the guilt offering according to the law it's a ram it's a ram not rats and not skin disorders, not a golden statue of a, guilt, uh, uh, of a guilt offering, but a sacrifice, an unblemished, spotless ram, sacrifice shed of its blood, bloodshed. And this reckless approach to God was totally unacceptable. And, and, and family, the point, of, the point of these sacrifices in the temple, in the tabernacle, all this blood, all this violence, all this death, all the odor... It's to point to the reality of how bad our sin really is before a holy God. 
Sin is a debt that man has incurs against God. And the debt is paid through the offered animals. And, and in the Old Testament, we see here in this story, the Philistines had incurred a debt against God, the God of Israel, Yahweh, and it must be repaid. And it's not going to be repaid by man. It's not going to be repaid in the sense of whatever you think needs to be done. Now, us modern people, postmodern people, would not make a golden rat a golden tumor to deal with our sin or shame. We do things like work 24-7, take drugs, have an attitude of superiority to feel good about ourselves in order to avoid the emptiness, a sense of failure that we have, a sense that we are not perfect. You say, no, not me. I don't have any sense of failure or shame at all. Really? Okay. And why do you go such to great lengths to hide what's really going on within your soul, within your heart? Why are you so afraid to let people really know deep down what the struggles you face day in and day out? Deep in our hearts, we know that we cannot come into the presence of God. We, We know we are guilty. We know that we have shame. And rather than come and receive grace, we'd rather work and cover up by our own effort, by our own ways, our own thoughts, attitudes, and works, trying to erase guilt and find meaning in our life. I'm reminded of Lady Macbeth and the plot, center of the plot is this this intense desire for for her her ambition of power and doing whatever it takes. And in Act 5, Scene 1, Lady Macbeth sleepwalking through the castle, hallucinating and rubbing her hands together as if she was washing them, and she's saying out loud, out, damn spots, out I say. Speaking about the imaginary blood she sees on her hands from the murders and the crimes she and her husband committed. She felt the guilt, but she could not get rid of it. Verse 7. Now then, this is, this is their diviners, this is their spiritualist, this is their priest. They say, look, this is what you do. Take, verse 7, and prepare a new cart and two milk cows on which there was never come a yoke. And, and, and yoke the cows to the cart. But, verse 7, take their calves home, calves home, away from them, verse 8, and take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart and put it in a box and its side the figures of gold, which are returning to him as a guilt offering, then send it off and let it go. Verse 9, but watch. If it goes up on the way to its own land, Beth Shemesh, then it is he, God, who has done us this great harm. But if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that struck us. It happened to us by coincidence. They say, dink. Obviously, there was some like, we're not really sure all this suffering is from the Lord. Even though the plague, wherever the plague went, in every city, everyone was struck with tumors and died. But we're still not sure this could be a coincidence. So they got a test. They concoct the test. Is this really behind it? They take the cows who have just recently give, given birth, so you know that the, the cows are dependent on the cows, and one that has never been yoked, and they're like, all right, let's send the calves home, and let's yoke up these animals, and let's check out and see what happens. And you can see them following these, this cart, and they're hiding behind the trees, watching the cart. The men did so, verse 10. Because obviously, he's, the, the, the cows are going to go back home to their calves. 
They're not going to like to be yoked. That would be the natural thing for them to do. Verse 10. The men did so. All right, let's do this test. Two milk cows and yoked them to the cart and shut up their calves at home. And they put the ark of the Lord on the cart and the box and the golden mice and images of the tumors. And the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh along one highway. Lowering as they went, (coughs) they turned neither to the right nor to the left. And the lords of the Philistines went away, went after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. Now, now, by God's sheer grace, he honored their silly tests. And the cows go straight without looking to the left and to the right. In fact, the word lowering as they went implies, I think, they were being driven against their natural inclinations by something that is greater than themselves. It was the Lord. A divine leading as they are just head down, obeying the king, the one who created the cow, as they walk straight to Beth Shemesh, about six miles, I think it's about seven miles east of Ekron, where that was. It was a city, it was a city that had Levitical priests in it, because it was a Levitical city, and uh, they were in charge of the Ark of the Covenant, this priestly family, and we see this cow go right into that city. Verse four, excuse me, in Numbers chapter four. Now, I just want to stop for a second, just point out something in the, in the text. <clears throat> I, I want to point out that many times we talk about, well, people talk about God in the Old Testament just killing people, and that's all he does. There's no mercy, there's no grace. There's a lot of grace right here. Here's the enemies going about atoning for sins all the wrong way, and even putting the creator sovereign God to the test And God graciously reveals himself to them. Verse 16, the five rulers who were spying on this saw all of this. God's in control. God is sovereign. God's wrath has been upon us. It is the Lord, the God of Israel, that has done this. Maybe you're here this morning and you've never made a commitment to Christ. You've never yielded your life to the Lord Jesus Christ. You're here because of grace and mercy to hear that God loves you and that Jesus was sent to die an atoning sacrifice for your sins and all those who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's God's grace to you this morning. Verse 13. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley. And when they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. Verse 14. The cart came into the field of Joshua, probably named after Joshua 20 years earlier, <coughs> or earlier than this, um, Beth Shemesh, and stopped there. A great stone was there, and they, what did they do? Look at verse 14. They split up the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. Verse 15. And the Levites, that's what's supposed to happen, took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was inside of it, which were the golden figures, and set them upon this great stone. And the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings. I believe it was the men, the Levitical priest. And offered sacrifice, excuse me, offered burnt offerings and sacrifice sacrifices on that day to the Lord. See what's happening? The ark, the Lord brings the ark back, and there's a party going on, at least for a moment. They're doing things right. It's May, June, spring, spring has already come, the rain has come, and they're out reaping harvest. The, the wheat field is full. 
people are rejoicing that there's wheat in the community. And all of a sudden, they hear this clunk, 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 and they look, and the ark is coming back. They stop what they're doing. They stop what they're doing. What they were doing was really important. What was they doing was very important. They stop what they're doing and go and do what's critical. Sometimes there are things in our life that's really important. But you know what? Sometimes there are things that are critical. Those that are in recovery recognize how critical how important it is to get a job, how important it is to, 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 to work, to get reacclimated into the community, to um, restore relationships, build relationships back with your children, important stuff. But those who know what is critical is that they remain the priority of recovery. Everything else will fail. And we see here a priority. Stop what we're doing. It's really important, but this is critical. The ark is back. And they have priority, then they have sacrifice. They chop up the wood, they burn it up, and they sacrifice the cows. The people did not assume to take the cow, uh, excuse me, the cart themselves because the law says the Levites were to do it. And for a moment, and it's been a while, they're showing reverence to the law of God, to the holiness of God. They're offering sacrifices. They're honoring the Lord. They approach him through sacrifice, and they obey his word and his law. And then in verse 15 and verse 19, we, we see the sovereignty of God. We see, we see God's gracious hand upon the Philistines, and, and there's, a, there's a straight stone there. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a witness of the faithfulness of God, the goodness of God, the mercy of God, and the joy of the people. It was to serve as a witness, that stone. And then verse 19. And he, God, struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck men. He struck 70 men. And the people mourned. Why did they mourn? Look, because the Lord had struck the people with a great Blow. Holiness is the point. Again, following the prescribed ways God has chosen to worship. These, these, these tumors, these silly tests, these idols that we saw in chapter 5 falling down before the ark, it was almost comical, comes to a dead and dramatic end. And God takes men, 70 men that day, he is not going to be scorned. He is not going to be mocked in the land of the Philistines. And he's certainly not going to be mocked and scorned in the land of Israel. Now, commentators are, I won't say all over the place, but commentators differ on what exactly happened. But we, we're not really sure. But obviously, these men who knew better looked at the ark in some inappropriate, unsuitable way. Obviously, it doesn't mean they just glanced at it because, you know, the ark's coming into the village. You're going to see it come. But they either gawked at it in, in a wrong way. They, some people say they looked into the ark, which is forbidden. The law said that it's supposed to be covered. Maybe they covered fast enough. 
in responding to the judgments inflicted on them by the Lord, the, the men at Beth Shemetz, uh, you know, at this place, behave like the Philistines. Instead of mourning, repenting for their sins, look what it says, they mourn because of the heavy blow the Lord had dealt with them. God, uh, uh, the consequences is too much. Verse 20, then the men said, man, who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up away from us? Get rid of this ark. Who could stand? The Israelites couldn't stand. Dagon fell down twice in his temple prostrate before the Lord. He couldn't stand. The Philistines could not stand before the Lord. Seventy men who thought they could do it on their own could not stand before the Lord. And they cry out. Who could stand? But what are we going to do? Look at verse 21. So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Karath, Jerem, saying, the Philistines return the ark of the Lord. Come down. Uh, we don't want this either. And take it up to you. Chapter 7, verse 1. And the men came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house Abinadab on the hill. All right, let's, let's move it. And they consecrated, smart move, his son Eleazar, to have charge of the Ark of the Covenant. Look at verse 2, chapter 7, verse 2. From the day that the Ark was lodged at Kirith Jerem, a long time passed, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented how? After the Lord. The narrator is signaling, 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 pointing. <laughs> Singling. Transition. Something's going on here. As we transfer from six to seven chapters, something's going on. It's been 20 years. You know, sometimes we're in a dark valley for a long time, right? I mean, sometimes we're, 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 we're in a deep, dark place. And the route we are taking seems like 20 years. Maybe you're in a drought this morning. Maybe, you're, maybe we need to cry out together for the hunger of God again. It's been so long to hear his word, to draw near to him. God is saying there is a way. Not a reckless way, but a way of repentance. And in chapter 7, the prophet of God and the word of God returns. Samuel is going to lead God's people back into a right standing with him. And they will not only repent of their sins, but they're going to make a recommitment to him. True repentance, family, listen, true repentance always involves sorrow for sin, but a seeking after the Lord. Samuel, as you know, has been missing since chapter 4, verse 1. The entire rest of chapter 4, 5, and 6, people have not heard the word of God. And now chapter 7, verse 2, and following the people of God, led by the man of God, are ready to hear the word of God and to now seek the very face of God. First Samuel chapter 2. And all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, if, if you're returning to the Lord with all your heart, then, if you're returning, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord. Serve him only and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. It's a call to repent. It's a call to turn from their false idols. 
Paul told the church of, uh, in the Thessalonians, chapter 1, verse 9, how word is spreading that they turned to God from their idols to serve the living and true God. That's what Samuel is calling them to. And maybe that's what you need to hear this morning, uh, the idea of, of repentance. You've been wandering from God, and by his grace, he's calling you by his word to turn from where you're going, the direction you're headed in. Maybe there's things going on in your life this morning that you sense the, 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 the direction you're going and the temptation you are facing is taking you in the wrong direction. Turn. Will you respond to the mercy of God this morning by turning? It is, it is the, the message of the New Testament the New Testament opens up with John the Baptist preaching what? A baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The Lord himself shows up on the scene and begins his ministry. Mark chapter 1, this time is fulfilled, Jesus said. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repent. It's a change of direction because there's been a change of mind, emotion, and will. It's not simply feeling sorry and remorse for your sin, although that's good. It's not simply feeling that way, especially if you got caught, and now you have the shame of being caught. It's not even just confessing our sin, although that is good. It is a change of course. Samuel's talking about getting real about sin. Getting real about sin and sensing a need to turn. Repentance is something that is done by unbelievers. Repentance is something when if you come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the way into the kingdom is one coin, two sides, repent and faith. Repent and believe. But repentance is, all, it is also for the children of God. Martin Luther mentioned earlier in his, in his 95 Theses, do you know what the first one of his 95 Theses said? When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance, end quote. You see, genuine repentance to turn is always, always a turning to God. It is God-centered. It's never in the biblical sense changing one behavior, quitting, stopping, and turning from one behavior and starting another behavior. It is to serve him and him only. That's biblical repentance. It's not giving up one habit for another habit. Why? Because no matter who you serve or what you serve, even if it's a good thing, when it becomes the ultimate thing, it's an idle thing. To serve him only. And, and when we serve and worship God as our supreme treasure, that will destroy the idols. What is our supreme treasure this morning? Direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. Jesus said it this way, anyone who loves his father and his mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. What Samuel's calling the people of God to and what we are calling our people, we together as a church to, is really the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. The point is that God will not share the center of your heart, the foundation of life with anything or anyone else. Do we put him as the ultimate priority? The ultimate treasure of our life. You know, Scripture teaches us that God is a jealous God. Do you know that? Maybe you never heard that before. Scripture teaches us that God is a jealous God. Not the depraved, stalking kind of jealousy, right? God is not jealous or envious because someone has something that he needs or he wants. 
God is jealous when someone gives to another something that rightly belongs to him. God's jealousy is a product of his perfect, self-sufficient love. And when the Bible talks about jealousy, it's usually in the context of idolatry. When people make idols and bow down and worship idols instead of, of giving God the worship that belongs to him alone, God's, God is possessive in his worship and the service that belongs to him and to him alone. It is good and right for a husband. It is good and right for a husband who, who sees someone crossing the line, being way too flirtatious with their wives to say, that ain't right, that's not gonna happen. We are in covenant relationship. God has given you to me. I'm here to protect you. I'm gonna talk about the crazy ones. You know what I'm talking about. Samuel is calling them back to seek the Lord, to put all the rivals away. So let me ask you this morning, what are all the rivals to God in your life? What is keeping you from, 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 from treasuring, valuing God above all earthly treasures, even the good stuff? What is it that has come in between you and God where you can no longer do that? Perhaps it's a person, a goal, a pursuit, a money, anger, pride, the use of your time. What is it? That's between you and the Lord. But he is not going to take a sidestep to his glory. And before we can turn to the Lord, many times we need to identify our idols and put them aside. Here Samuel's calling them to, call, uh, to repent of their idols, including, the, what does it say, the Ashtaroth, a Canaanite god. Now the Canaanite religion was an interesting religion. They combined, they were, they were in total opposition of Yahweh. God's people is called to be holy to be separate from sin and devoted to God, to be set apart. Their cultural practices, their religious practices combined sexual sin and uh, 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 religious ritual. They combined the two, sexual sin and religious ritual. They, 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 they combined liturgy in the church and the orgies that were going on. It was a, a powerful force among the people as it is today. Statistically, men and women strung out on sexual sin. Whether it's pornography, whether it is lustful thoughts, whatever it may be. That was their God. And Samuel is calling them to repent. To see the holiness of God. To see their sinfulness. And to repent and believe. Believe the gospel. It's not just for believers. It's, it's for all, it's not just for unbelievers, for believers. True repentance is a regular confession, acceptance, and desire to change as we live in light of the truth of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. When we sin, we realize that we can't fix ourselves. We're reminded by the gospel that we must turn to Jesus for forgiveness and transformation. It is a lifestyle. Not an occasional practice. It's actually a mark of God's love. Do you know that repenting of your sin is a mark of God's love? Revelation 3.19. Those whom I love, God talking, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. It's a mark of God's love. That's why we have communion. We call the church to repentance. It's not something you do to earn God's love. Let me make it really clear. It's not something that you need to repent so that God will love you. That, that somehow you've earned it now by your repentance. No, it is a gift of God, but I will tell you, genuine repentance will bring forth the fruit 
of a life changed. That's what John the Baptist said, bring forth the fruit of repentance. And that's what we have in our text. Look at chapter 7, verse 4. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and, and, oh, the Baal and the Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord only. Calvin wrote this, repentance is an inner matter, inward matter, which has its seat in the heart and soul, but afterward yields its fruit in a changed life. Now, we're never going to be perfect this side of glory. There's always going to be times where we're confessing and repenting of sin. But a repented soul is someone who fights with the devil, who fights with the sinful nature, who's always coming back to the gospel, to the gospel, to the gospel. Blood of Calvary, the work of Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins. The way of, let's, let's end with the way of re- recommitment. Look at verse five with me. Then Samuel said, listen, let's gather together at Mizpah and I'll pray for you. Samuel's like, let's get together because when there's, there's a national day of fasting and people are getting together, coming to hear the word of God, whenever there's a recommitment with the Lord, there's a recommitment with God's people. With God's people, it shows itself with people getting together. That's what we have. Let's get together. Verse six, they gathered in Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and they fasted on that day. We're not really sure what the water could have been an offering, but I think that's something to do since it's connected with fasting. They were giving up water. They were giving up food, that life-sustaining stuff. They they were taking their sin seriously. They're dead serious about their sin. We're giving up water. We're giving up food. And then they have confession, public. We have sinned. Verse 6b, we have sinned against the Lord and Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mitzpah. The people have repented, the people are recommitting themselves, and the people need an intercessory. Uh, an intercessor, someone who will come and, and, and pray for them. They, they have broken their covenant. They have, they have sinned against God. They have run after God. They have prostituted themselves. They provoked his anger. and They know they can't stand before him and they are calling out through this intercessor named Samuel. He gathers the people, he judges them. Judges just don't just say what's right and wrong. Judges lead people back to God, and he's praying for them. They need to repent, they need to recommitment. Verse 7. When the Philistines heard that the people of Israel gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard it, look what it says. They were afraid of the Philistines. Catch that. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord, our God. Don't, don't stop crying out for us that, we, that he, God, may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered up as a burnt offering unto the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord of Israel. Now look, and the Lord answered him, the word of God. It's come to Samuel. And here we see him, Samuel as an intercessory judge, as a, as a priest and a prophet. He judges them, he prays for them. God's word comes to him and he's a, good priest and he's offering up sacrifices burnt offerings which many times associated with praise and worship there's a renewal of worship in connection with the right way to approach God let Samuel do it but notice something very interesting here and I I want to talk about this just for a minute the time of repentance and commitment brings what? conflict that should teach us something about God and about our walk with God and about getting right with God, about confessing and repenting of sin, conflict comes. They're they're worshiping and the Philistines attack. Isn't that your life? Isn't that my life? Verse 10, Samuel is offering up a burnt offering and the Philistines drew near to attack. 
if you remember from chapter 4, just the opposite is happening here. They were, uh, the Philistine drew up against Israel in verse, chapter 4, verse 2. And what happened was, during that time in chapter 4, the people of Israel did not consult the word of the Lord. They went into battle with their own strength. They even lost the battle. They brought out the rabbit's foot. In fact, it says that they weren't afraid at all. It was the Philistines, chapter 4, who were afraid. Now, they're calling out onto the Lord. They're sacrificing onto the Lord. And they're the ones that are afraid. And I think, I think the Philistines were afraid in chapter 4. Now, in chapter 7, Israel's afraid. And I think that's a good fear. I think, I think the narrator put that in there is saying that they're humble now. We need the help of God. I can't do this on my own. I, I am the, uh, I, I'm not David with the rock. I'm Israel and I'm afraid. And I'm calling out on the Lord. Sometimes that humility is what we need. The call out to the Lord. And the Lord thundered, verse 10, mighty sound against the Philistines and threw them into confusion. And they were defeated before Israel. It's just what Hannah said in chapter 2. Her prayer was, the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them, he will thunder in heaven. This is Anna theology. Hannah theology. Verse 11 to close. And the men of Israel went from Mizpah, pursued the Philistines, and struck them as far as Beth Car. And Samuel took a stone and set it up against uh, Mizpah and Shen, called it Ebenezer. Lord has helped us. Verse 13. The Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken now, listen, Israel was restored from Ekron to Gath. And Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. They restored. There was peace between Israel and the Amorites. The opposite is what happened. These verses are powerful because they tell us that Israel... is is calling out to God. And at that point, God is no longer the adversary, but the emissary is not against them. He is for them. And And it's happened because of Samuel. Through Samuel, and the narrator, the narrator is careful to indicate that the mighty deliverance from the Philistines came about after Israel repented through Samuel as he leads them and turned their heart back to God. The movement of God's people, their their genuine repentance, their sacrifices, the listening to the word of God, the seeking after God's heart, the recommitting themselves to God was not about the ark. And here's the point. You and I cannot stand before God. You and I cannot waltz into the very presence of God. Even repentance by itself is not enough to stand before before a holy God. God is holy and you are not. It is only through the blood, the violent, bloody sacrifice that, can, that we can stand before a holy God. So the question, who could stand before the holiness of God? Only those who take protection, take shelter under the blood of the Lamb. Jesus is the true and better Samuel. He is the intercessor, the mediator, and the high priest who lives forever. And therefore, Jesus is able to save, Romans, Hebrews tells us, to the uttermost who draw near to God through him because he always lives to make intercession for them. There's the portfolio of Good Friday and the empty tomb. Jesus is the word who becomes flesh. Jesus is the one who identifies with us. He's not, he's not an animal. He is a man. He identifies with us in every way, yet without sin, who dies as our substitute. Blood was shed 
for the forgiveness of sins, and he intercedes on our behalf. Romans 3. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace, forgiven of our sin, counted righteous through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, whom God, the Father, put forward as a propitiation, the appeasing of wrath by the blood of Jesus to be received by faith so that he, God, might be just, holy, perfect, judge sin. He might be just and the justifier forgives sins, gives you, imputes righteousness through Jesus Christ our Lord for those that have faith in Jesus. When you see the holiness of God, when you see the holiness of God and the just and right wrath that you deserve, that I deserve, poured out on Jesus, the perfect spotless lamb of God, the God-man, how could you not repent of your idols? stupidity and folly and worship God exclusively. Look at Jesus. The Israelites waited 20 years, but today's the day of destroying idols and worshiping the Lord God through the sacrifice and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, as we see this picture of your holiness, as we see your hot white perfection, We see the reality that we could never stand before you. You take sin seriously. We are so thankful and reminded of the truth of the gospel. That Jesus Christ, the perfect one, died in our place for our sin. Was judged for us. Bore the wrath we deserve. And out of love was buried and rose from the dead. Lord, help us to tear down those idols in our life and to worship you and you alone. And maybe this is the first time, Lord, someone here that you will give life to. Help them to see the beauty of Christ and all that he has done for them. And help us all to call upon the name of the Lord, we pray in Jesus' name.